Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is a good one. We've got the former FIFA referee and current TV Laws of the Game analyst, Christina Uncle, to talk about her story and important questions you've got about the officiating side of the game. We've had some great guests lately, including Sam Mewis and Lynn Williams, Alexis Nunez, and Peter Schmeichel. Now, here's my interview with Christina Uncle. Our guest now is the first refereeing expert we've had on the show. Christina Uncle is a friend of mine and a former FIFA referee who's a terrific laws of the game analyst you've no doubt seen on television, most recently on CBS platforms. She's also a practicing lawyer, among other things. Christina, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is uh, great to finally connect again. It's been a bit. Yeah, you and I actually, I, I think we met doing Fox Sports Women's World Cup broadcasting in 2019 for uh, for that platform. Really enjoyed getting to to know you a little bit and, and your story and, and want to share that with our listeners here because I think it's really interesting. Um, could you start off, I guess, by explaining where you're from and what your background is as a referee in the game of soccer? Yeah, so um, guess where I'm from is I'm actually currently located in beautiful Sarasota, Florida. I am not objecting to the weather here whatsoever. <laughs> and especially, unfortunately, when we were in a COVID lockdown, um, for the limited amount Floridians were in COVID lockdown, uh, it was a good place to be uh, because of the outdoors. So not complaining there, but basically grew up um, in Florida, originally born in San Diego, California. Uh, my dad fixed helicopters in the Navy. So I was a uh, you know, Navy brat, hung out in the base station quite a bit. Um, but, you know, we got transported over here to Jacksonville, Florida, and that's when I learned about humidity and that my hair was not straight. Um, but yeah, I grew up here in this area quite a bit and uh, started my officiating career when I was about 10, 11. It was kind of on that borderline there here in Florida. Uh, and so now, oof, a couple days, I'm going to be uh, 34. So uh, been Any officiating birthday? for about... Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I know. I, I keep forgetting about that. I also forgot about my anniversary. I thought we were 11 years in and my husband <laughs> reminded me it was 12. So <laughs> I'm not good at numbers. Um, hence why I hire CPAs instead. But uh, yeah, all that being said, um, Floridian now tried and true. Um, don't like the cold. Actually, make sure I don't get games in snow. I've only refereed one game in snow. Um, and yeah, been officiating for 24 years, still actively doing that. And, uh, yeah, new little change in my refereeing career with this media stuff, which has been pretty exciting. I mean, that's really cool. I like who, who starts refereeing at age 10 or 11? I guess you did. I mean, I, I mean, like that's sort of my first reaction. Like what's the story there? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's probably not like the best reason to do it, but, um, one, I just wanted to yell at the refs. I think it's like what everybody wants to do. So I, I, I understand when people want to yell at the refs because one, it's, it, it should never be personal, right? It's, you're just refereeing at, you're yelling at the decision. You're yelling at your own frustrations, X, Y, and Z. I always tell, especially up and coming referees and those who, you know, might have a confidence issue. I'm like, understand it's not personal. It's just the uniform that you're wearing, right? Whether it's soccer, football, basketball, et cetera, every referee look, it gets dragged through. It's just everyone, if you're into, books and narratives or romanticism like there's always a bad villain and so unfortunately the referees always have to fulfill that role uh even if you just like no man i just really want to chill and hang out with y'all but um i think it's because i want to yell at the referees and my coach was a referee as well um so coach bob it, and this is the beauty of it was like 
you got to be quiet. You got to stop yelling at the referees because you're not even yelling at them correctly. Like you're using, you're not even using the right terms. That's not even correct. He goes, you either going to be quiet or you're going to sit and take the referee course. So you at least know what you're saying. So, I mean, with the, I mean, it kind of shows my personality at that point. I was like, well, I want to keep yelling. So I'm going to go take the course and I'm going to go learn so I can continue to yell at the referees and at least use the proper terminology. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of history. Then, I mean, there's not many jobs you can do at the age 11, 12 years old, make money, um, cash back in the day, which was nice. I never knew nothing about reporting. So IRS can't come after me. I think there's a statute of limitations on that. But um, yeah, it was just really nice to be able to make cash money, um, be able to afford to pay for my own car. I mean, that's just, that's an empowerment to be able to make money, especially at that age. Um, and kind of in my family and my background, uh, we don't come from, you know, high wealth or anything like that. You know, my parents worked two, three different jobs to be able to put me in a nice private school because I had gotten school choice in Florida. I got put into a grade F school. So the ability to kind of help take care of, you know, my clothing, if I wanted to do something with friends and not put that financial burden, um, it was pretty empowering. So that's kind of how I started and kind of kept with the game. Interesting. So becoming a FIFA referee, that's a, a rare thing. Like, how did you transition from sort of doing this because you liked it and you made some money to making this something really serious like that? Yeah, I think the first, um, I would say the tipping point for any official, especially for me, was just somebody finding you and investing in you, right? Giving you that belief um, and just kind of the pathway. Um, So what was it? I think it wasn't until around 18, 19. So I was playing, I played college soccer at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Uh, It was D2 Christian Liberal Arts School in West Palm Beach, right next to the ocean. Clearly I picked things based upon locale, uh, (laughs) which worked out great because I tore my ACL twice. So when I was off the field, at least, you know, I was in West Palm Beach, right? Not a bad place. Um, But it was there funny enough that go figure. I was still yelling at the referees at that point. Uh, that the referee in my match was what we call the state referee administrator, the SRA. So basically the head honcho of the state, um, uh, Joe Mikda uh, at that time period. Um, so I was yelling at him and then he yelled back at me and said, what are you, a referee? And I'm like, yeah, what's it mean to you? Uh, and then I got an email the next day. Uh, I'm obviously, I was still certified saying, great, you know, I'm glad you yelled at me. Now I know that you're a referee too. We're going to go send you to... But back in the day, they had those eight ODP international um, trials or ODP international tournaments down in the Boca, Fort Lauderdale area for, I think it was like 17s or 18s. Um, and this story, I always tell people, I'm glad nobody remembered me back then, because at that point, I would just referee to make money. I wouldn't go to events. Um, and it was un- it was foreign to me. He's like, great. You know, he had some belief, said, go down, do a couple of lines. It was during Thanksgiving period. So it was my first free time. Uh, it was my freshman year, too, to go see my family. And I ran a couple of lines for some national women referees, you know, that were in the bubble and coming up. And you had Paul Tamburino, uh, is probably a name you guys remember, yeah. um, Herb Silva, uh, Alfred Clonitis, all of those individuals were there. And I just ran a line and it was just that he just gave me an opportunity because I yelled at him. I do remember doing the games and a friend of mine, Kristen Shirk at that time, now Kristen Salazar, who also came up with me uh, as a referee, a national referee here in Florida. And she had made the statement, like, I had asked her, I was like, cool, how much are we getting paid for this? And she's like, none, this is an academy. You don't get paid to go to referee academies. Like, it's an opportunity to, you know, be pre- be in front of these people. And I'm like, well, that's messed up. I'm not working for free. So I got in my car and I went home. 
<laughs> I don't even tell anybody. And I am so glad no one remembers me from back in the day. Like, that shows how little I know. People are like, what grade are you? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm in 12th grade in high school or I'm a freshman in college. Like, what does grade mean? So I, I say that story because it was 18, 19, completely oblivious, ignorant to a path a refereeing could take you to even having given an opportunity and I guess doing the completely horrific wrong thing where people could write you off as not being interested. Thank God, like I said, no one remembered me. Um, And then it kind of just continued from there. So Joe Mikna continued to reach out to me. Um, That's when I first met Nancy Lay very quickly after that. Um, So many people may know Nancy Lay, um, especially recently, right, from, you know, some uh, articles from Tori Penso, et cetera. Nancy Lay was one of the first female referees in the Major League Soccer over 20 years ago to have officiated um, there. So, and she has this really kind of don't take any nonsense kind of personality and grit. Um, and so she invested in me really quickly early as well. And they kind of started explaining to me and the path and how it works and um, just putting me in games that I really shouldn't have qualified for. I've always liked the mental challenge of refereeing of how do I get 22 people on the field and the bench uh, and the people in the stands to get them to do what I want them to do without realizing I got them to do. (laughs) So it's kind of like that mental game for me. And so they would put me into some pretty competitive down in the Miami area. Um, Adult amateurs, different, you know, regions and ethnics and cultural games, right? Like you'll have the Croatians versus the Argentinians, clearly two different styles of play and two different tolerance levels for fouls. Um, And they would just throw me in there and say, Hey, you're going to burn yourself. You're going to, you're going to sink We'll give you some good ARs, just learn the lessons, right, when the cameras aren't on, um, and just really start learning game management and survival skills. Um, so it's kind of that investment. Um, when someone invests you, invests in you as a referee and tells you about a path and gives you opportunities, right, and isn't scared knowing that you're going to stub your toe out of the gate, um, that's kind of what flipped the switch for me was I was like, hey, somebody thinks I can do this. So let me try. So you officiated for many years, refereed as well, um, and we'll get to the decision that you made a couple of years ago to go in the media direction, which I know wasn't easy for you, but like when you were refereeing, what were some of the big games, big moments you worked? Yeah, that's that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, I had some really, I was, you know, really blessed and honored to, prior to becoming a FIFA, uh, for the two, three years prior to when I was a national referee, um, at that point, there wasn't a requirement that on any of the U.S. women's international friendlies or any international friendlies here in the States that it required a FIFA referee on the match. So um, I was really, really lucky and fortunate to work quite a number of those matches, um, always as a fourth. Uh, I laugh because my first one was as an assistant referee, and I'm not a good assistant referee. Um, and it was actually in Tampa Bay, right? So it was the Raymond James Stadium. Um, so that was kind of a really cool honor to be able to do those games and see some of the most professional players because there's not – a replacement from jumping from college officiating to women's division one professional, especially international, especially when back in the day we had WPS, which is the first division one I was part of since the beginning, where it was just a huge jump off from players and skill level and et cetera. So those were some of the games I really truly enjoyed. And like my key moment game in that was my first international whistle. Um, once again, this goes, I think, to maybe like the beauty of me kind of being, you know, young and just like, I'm going to get this done no matter what was my first whistle assignment was in Portland. And it was U.S. Women's National Team versus Canada. 
It was John Ooh. Herman's first match, and it was right Ooh. after, I believe, the Olympics, right? Where <laughs> he Canada off of the sixth second. And so there was just all this hostility pouring in. And in Portland, my first time ever in Portland. So I didn't realize the, the Pacific Northwest and the passion for soccer. And it was on ESPN. So I'm sitting here like, holy smokes. Like, I'm glad I'm really ignorant to all of these different things. I'm just going to go. Because, like, my number one fear was, like, the ball used to be on a rotating stand, so the, like you'd walk out, and like walking out as a referee is probably the one most empowering things because you're leading two teams, the cameras are on you, right? It's game time. You get that adrenaline. You hear the players chanting, like in the tunnel. There's nothing to replace that adrenaline high. And the only thing I could think about in that game was, for the love of God, do not drop this rotating ball because like the camera's directly on you, <laughs> and this would be horrific. And I'm there was like, that's really what you were concerned about in that entire game. I'm like, yeah, because as soon as I hit the whistle, I just got to figure it out really, really quickly. <laughs> if not, the game's gonna go really bad. Um, but it's all those kind of semantics. So that one for me was probably the most memorable early on. And then you know, once it became a FIFA. Um, some of the um, probably the next uh, probably I would say Keystone match. I mean, I had a lot of hire from semifinals right in the WPS to the NWSL matches um, and some really really um, like playoff games, et cetera. And some really you know the great Portland Seattle rivalries. Those were always my favorite. Something always freakish happened in those games. Uh, <laughs> no matter how much you prepare for something, it always happened. Um, but I would say it would be, uh, funny enough, the Veracruz championship match um, that was between Mexico uh, and Colombia. And the reason why it was one of my favorite games was because of how I got assigned that game. So it was through CONCACAF. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a dog-eat-dog world, um, kind of very weird where you know, you're supporting each other as officials, but at the same time, you know, if somebody doesn't perform, then you get an opportunity. Or like, I always prefer to flip that narrative around and say, you want to be the best of the best. So you always, you want everyone to perform really good, but you just want yourself to perform even better. Right. Some people have a different mentality in this world. And when you get into the CONCACAF region, it gets even more cutthroat and competitive. And for the majority of us Americans, we have full-time jobs and this is you know, an extra job that doesn't pay like an extra job. Um, and for Central Americans and a lot of the Caribbeans, this is their full-time job. So them staying at that tournament longer or getting the championship game or whatnot is the difference between being able to feed their family for an additional week or whatnot because they've been away from their family. So that tournament and that final was important because essentially what they had done was said, hey, here are the three eligible referees to referee the championship based on performance and also not conflicted out because the country, Costa Rican referee, um, um, a Honduran referee and I, and then the referees internally got to choose who they thought after the tournament, who would have, who would referee that game. And I'm like, well, I'm an American. I'm clearly not going to get chosen. <laughs> I'm the only American at this tournament. Um, and uh, after like secret ballot, it, it turned out to be me. So that meant a lot because I was selected by my colleagues and my peers to officiate a championship in CONCACAF, which kind of showed how hard I had been working at, you know, creating and building those relationships between not just myself and others, but between America and, and the CONCACAF region. So you had mentioned to me at one point that you were working the game when Abby Wambach broke the goal scoring record. Yeah. 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 So uh, kind of like we were briefly talking prior to, um, I always, it, so that one, right. It happened in Red Bull arena. Um, 
I was the fourth official in that match. Margaret Domko was in it. You know, we go into these games, especially the international U.S. friendlies, knowing, hey, is this someone's going to be someone's, you know, a, a milestone cap for them, especially for the U.S. women's national team. There's always seems to be something. We're like, what else is next? Um, but we also obviously knew that if, uh, and I had worked a couple games prior to that, we're like, okay, if Abby scores this many goals, right, then we got to save the ball. So I always kind of laugh because I'm, literally right in the mix of these milestone moments for the U.S. Women's <laughs> National Team. But I can't do anything about it because I'm obviously a neutral participant. But yeah, so she scored this goal. And I was the fourth official. Like my number one thing was like, find the ball, save the ball, <laughs> give it to, you know, Lindsay Gamrod, who used to work for U.S. Soccer, just hand that ball over to her because obviously of the momentous it was. Um, and obviously, I think they were playing against China, if I remember correctly. And so I think they understood the, the, the magnitude of it. But yeah, it's just kind of funny because I'm literally like standing near them all and I could high five them if I if I really tried to but I obviously can't um but it's just so cool to be part of that stuff you know I always remember my first international game like I mentioned Angela Huckles it was her retirement game so it's a lot of these things are kind of full circle to me where I worked with Angela Huckles for the first time you know with the 2019 Women's World Cup and I'm like ah, Nobody knows these stories. Like, I used to do that. Like, you know, Heather O'Reilly, her last match, um, you know, I was a referee on that match for her retirement game. Like, all of these crazy stories. That I'm like, no, I was literally physically there experiencing this moment with you. <laughs> so that's always fun to kind of recap. It is pretty cool because I felt this, too, working on television with people that I've covered, you know, for a while and, and really enjoying having that work experience with them where you're, you're actually kind of their teammate on mm -hmm. a television broadcast, which is, is kind of fun to experience that. I, I want to switch gears a little bit here just to the sort of general nature of the side of the game you're an expert on. Could you explain to listeners what the IFAB is and its yeah. role with the laws of the game globally? Yeah, no, uh, great question, because it's one of those things until you become a real soccer nerd, you kind of dig into the minutia of this. And it's not really a minutia, but it is if you if you only watch the game and flick it on TV. So essentially IFAB, uh, and I always get this wrong, uh, right? So the International Football Federation, something, 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 right? So I just call it <laughs> IFAB. Um, I do love their motto. They're, it sounds like, like uh, from like galaxy of the guardians it's like we are you know the guardians and supporters of football and i'm like who wrote that like that's, it feels like a marvel superhero like mission statement but um all that being aside ifab uh is essentially right um and probably correct me if I'm wrong but uh you know european right over in the britain area right so it's only established by if i remember correctly like uk um basically uk regions uh and countries over there and those individuals specifically create what would be the laws of the game, right? Those, the laws that govern essentially football, which you kind of all see now that, um, which by the way, I'm not, I'm going to give a shameless plug for IFAB, but I'm not sponsored by them. Download that app. It is an incredible app. It has laws of the game. So if you ever have a question, you just type in a search term and it pops it up. But so IFAB basically creates the law. Um, they meet uh, for their annual general meeting, typically around kind of the March, April period. It'll all kind of a little bit fluctuate sometimes, not too much, but um, they're the ones who create the law and they create the law by not just being, and I, one thing I always like to clarify is they're not doing it in an isolated bubble, right? They're not just, hey, this will be fun and then just create the law that way, right? There's a lot of, um, when David Ellery got brought on into um, onto IFAB, right? There was a conscious thing saying, hey, we've had these laws in place that have gradually grown. And when David Ellery came on, it was a conscious effort to 
it was the most significant changes in the laws of the game, but to effectively modernize the laws to what the demands of modern football requires and needs, right? Because back in the day, like way back in the day, there wasn't even referees, right? Then the first referee was the one sitting in the stand, which I was like, why don't we go back to that? Because then there shouldn't be a fitness test and that'd be great, um, right? And then it just evolves to the referee being on the field and then kind of progressing. So IFAB essentially makes those laws um, and does it so through tests, through discussions with member associations, um, through tournaments. Right now, obviously, they are testing out, uh, you know, uh, uh, offside, right? So automated uh, VAR um, when it comes to offside lines, et cetera, uh, and the way they're going to go with that. But they're the ones who create the law. Then FIFA, right, um, having they have a member or two that sit on that committee as well with IFAB are the ones who are essentially responsible for the referees and the implementation of the law. So IFAB creates the law, FIFA implements the laws in the games that it's done and gives the direction and guidance to the referees. So they're more with the interpretation or application of the interpretation that's put on. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Christina Uncle. We're in the season's final days in La Liga, home of the best title race in Europe. And you can stream all the games on Fanatis live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch Copa Libertadores and top leagues from France, which also has a great title race, Portugal, Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the women's soccer channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. So people always want to talk about VAR. Um, with VAR, from my perspective, it seems like the angriest we see fans get is in England when the VAR is used to decide offside by the length of a person's toe and the lines on the TV screen come out and the decision gets made. We don't see those TV screen lines come out on an MLS broadcast, however, mm-hmm. for example. And, and I'm wondering, are, are different competitions using VAR in significantly different ways like that? And if so, how are they allowed to? Yeah, so it all comes down to the technology. So I always try to remind people is that you're right, over in Premier League, they have, and it's very, very expensive uh, to use this technology, but they have the offside line technology where literally... Hawkeye is able to drop the lines from uh, essentially a 3D or 4D angle, right? So then you can go across the line. Everything's calibrated prior to the match, too. So each stadium's calibrated. It's checked before the match. It's checked at halftime, right, to ensure that it's... Because sometimes we'll get angles on TV that aren't necessarily actually perpendicular, right? They're a little bit cockeyed, a little bit at angles. So if you were just to draw a line down the straight, of course you'd have a misinterpretation of offside. But Premier League uses the offside technology from Hawkeye. Um, So they are able to calculate if someone's offside by, I think if it's correct, um, it was like 0.5 centimeters or something really, really, really tight like that, which is why we see toes keeping people offside, right? We see, you know, basically the bare front of the forehead, that kind of a thing, maybe a knee if that, which is incredibly frustrating, right? Because when we are talking about soccer, you know, getting goals is such as like when you talk to other American fans of 
just sports and you're like, that was a great game. It was zero, zero. And everyone's like, how can you think that's a great game? There's no, like, we're not a high scoring sport. So, and all the rest of our sports are in America, but, um, there, because of that, I think that's what frustrates people is we want to see goals. You know, people would argue that doesn't give it an unfair advantage to against the defender. Um, whereas in here, major league soccer, there is no, uh, line technology from Hawkeye. So the only, we have essentially all the cameras to be able to review it, but as a VAR in, in major league soccer, which I'm currently serving as right now is, we literally, it, we do go to the deference of saying, you know, we use as best as we can, whether it is um, the top of the penalty area, right? The 18 line that might help us determine that maybe if the, gra- uh, the, if the grass uh, is cut enough for it to be able to see. But if we have a little bit of doubt, which toes would be easily within a little bit of doubt, it's not clear and obvious for us to recommend it down for an offside, which is why you're not seeing that much of that frustration. I know I wrote for The Athletic, that's why, you know, you're not going to be frustrated as much here, to which I think there's been, it's it's been so much more positive for Major League Soccer around the world where they say, hey, look how they're using it. Why can't we use it like that? And I'm like, well, save yourself millions of dollars, which Hawkeye might hate me right now, but save yourself <laughs> millions of dollars and get rid of that technology. And then that's just how you're going to have to apply it because it wouldn't be clear and obvious without it. Whereas if you have a line that tells you exactly, then the clear and obvious threshold kind of goes away because it's either right or it's wrong. And that's why I always tell people offside is a little interesting. You're either on or you're off. There's no in between, like a foul, right? Where we can talk about factors and, you know, where does it fall in the spectrum between a yellow and a red or just a foul versus a yellow. Offside, you're either on or you're off. So if you don't have that technology, then you're always going to go down one uh, when in doubt. Interesting. Um, So the IFAB recently did make some of its annual changes to the laws of the game. What are the most significant ones in your opinion this year? Yeah, I think kind of one of the most significant ones was, um, and where we saw go figure in Premier League again, is removing uh, what we had, um, essentially what they had coined was like an attacker handball, right? And these are in the situations where um, the ball um, is going into the net Pretty, pretty much imminently after there was even even if it was not deliberate, right? If it was an accidental handball by an attacker and it was two degrees removed, meaning like if I accidentally handed it, uh, hit it with my hand, then it went to a teammate who put it in the back of the net. We were taking that away. And right now the, the game's escaping my mind, but I can see the snapshot perfectly where, you know, everyone's like, that's such a travesty. It wasn't, you know, deliberate, you know, guy wasn't making himself bigger. He was natural, like too much. That one was taken away this year. So that was eliminated. So we do have, if an attacker accidentally scores with their hand or receives it with their hand and goes to their foot, even if it's not deliberate or making themselves bigger, that is still going to be taken away. There's not going to be a goal from that. But that second degree one uh, from an accidental handball leading to a goal that was imminent, um, that was removed. Um, I think that kind of, you know, finds that nice balance between what we considered, you know, um, okay, no one really wants a goal scored by a hand, even if it's accidental, um, to it being too far removed. So I think that was a really good um, kind of hearing the players, hearing the um, the coaches, the fans, everybody saying we don't like this and taking that into consideration and uh, making a quick resolution. Uh, the other one that I really um, liked and that they're going to keep is moving the laws of the game from effective on June 1st to July 1st. And, you know, not many people from the get-go would understand the significance of that. But obviously, we covered the 2019 Women's World Cup, where there was quite a bit of significant changes in the laws of the game that, um, and I always want to clarify, a lot of these associations 
knew what the new laws of the game were going to be changed in like November of 2018, December of 2019. I know specifically the FIFA referee committee went to each member association, explained it to everyone, said, are you guys okay with this? You understand? And leading up to the Women's World Cup, even here in the United States, I did a couple of international friendlies for the U.S. Women's National Team where we were allowed to use the new laws of the game change. So going into the Women's World Cup, everyone was fully briefed on it, but yet it, it was still a huge major tournament that... I would also, you know, be on that side saying that if it was a men's World Cup, they would not have implemented it. They would have waited another year. Um, so by changing it to July 1st, any summer World Cup, I'm going to clarify that now, now that we have Qatar <laughs> on a different time frame, right? Before we used to always say summer World Cups are always in the summer. Now it's random. But now we're not going to see that where prior to a major World Cup tournament where there's going to be any kind of laws of the game changes, it's going to impact that play, especially as we all saw the keeper coming off the line encroaching was an automatic mandatory yellow card for the referee. And trust me, my colleagues were like, this is the worst feeling in the entire world where everyone's going to hate me, but I can't not. And I know I was asked this, can they just ignore that? I go, yeah, if they want that to be their last game ever of their entire FIFA international career. <laughs> So um, I do like that they changed it July 1st. And I thought that was a, I understand they couldn't probably do it the year after because of the optics. Um, but I'm glad that that happened. And that's going to be the impact of that, which will be good so that it won't impact any other future Summer World Cups. So in 2019, when you started going into media, you had to stop being a FIFA referee. And that must have been a really hard decision. It was a really hard decision. Um, kind of how I started out when I explained, you know, kind of, going from just a, a what then you now call a grassroots referee or someone who's doing recreational to essentially who, someone who's doing FIFA kind of level is that invest, that someone who came to you and told you you can do it. And for me, that was Shaw Brown. And this is going to kind of wrap around to the struggle park. So Shaw Brown, who I now currently work with with Champions League on CBS, um, he had produced so many of my games that I had officiated for the U.S. Women's National Team. Didn't personally know him. He also did a lot of Major League Soccer, so he knew my husband. Um, and so he had actually reached out to me after the Tournament of Nations. I had just done Brazil-Australia, which is always a banger of a game. That's probably one of my, you know, most entertaining game from a management perspective to a player perspective, uh, to an actual, you know, high level of play. Um, and he approached me and he said, hey, would you be interested in, you know, being the rules expert back then or laws of the game expert uh, for the 2019 Women's World Cup? And that was like July of 2018. I'm like, no, man, that's going to be like career suicide for my FIFA career. Like, why would I do that? To which, like, everyone outside of the referee world, like, my family and friends were like, you are crazy for not even considering this option of potentially doing one of the biggest tournaments, you know, in, uh, of all time to not even go in there. And, you know, I always kind of complained about when analysts and broadcasters just destroyed the referee who, like, might have had an excellent, like, play on advantage and or apply the rules and they just didn't know the rules and then they killed them for it. And I'm, like, always complaining about it. Uh, and there's certain people that still do it to this day. And I'm like, God, I wish I could just call them and tell them <laughs> and teach them for free. But so my friends and family were like, you complain about this all the time. You now have an opportunity to like fix the errors and stick to your values of, you know, really bridging the gap between referees and the rest of the soccer community. Like you at least got to try it. So the fall of 2018, um, you know, I just, I didn't tell anybody. Um, uh, so I did a, a U.S. Women's International game. I think they played Scotland in like November or something like that. So I went to Fox and I'm just like, I'm just going to watch. And it was with JP and Allie. And uh, I was prepared that it's TV. So, you know, they can put you on the spot, even though they tell you not to. Um, and they did. They put me on the spot to kind of break down the analysis of what happened. 
<laughs> so I was like, all right, I'm about to figure this out. Um, and that was kind of a cool adrenaline rush. It's not many times where you're at a certain age and you are at the top of, you know, where you could qualify for the U.S. and say there's another opportunity to uh, not use, I mean, for lack of a better term, like level up or go into another direction or path, especially one that was never even a possibility or you thought was an option or could have ever been an option. And then kind of from there, I did a, a couple more games. I did a She Believes match with JP and Allie. And then uh, I did a game um, with Stu and Strong uh, for a men's international fr- friendly in early of 2019. That's right. And I knew that when I did the men's uh, uh, international friendly, I forgot which game they were playing, that I was, <laughs> then that was going to be the cat that, you know, the that basically the cat's out of the bag, um, that I was considering this. So I knew that it was going to be my FIFA career suicide, it was no longer probably going to be welcomed um, by not only, you know, local U.S. soccer committee, but also internationally wise. And at that point, I had finally, I waited till the last possible second. Fox is like, seriously, we're going to release like who's working 2019 tomorrow. So we need to know that I finally made that decision, you know, where I had to, I always believe in this, you know, your values aren't your values unless you're willing to sacrifice something for them. So my value of providing education and letting people enjoy the game um, and protecting the referee community because they truly don't have a voice, um, right? They get massacred in public opinion and they don't even have the opportunity to, you know, not even defend themselves, just explain. Um, Made me make that final decision to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then let me see what the repercussions are going to be, which were what exactly what I expected them to be. So <laughs> I lost my FIFA badge that year. But um, but yeah, it's just, it's just open up different doors and opportunities to do something even bigger than I could have done on the pitch. Um, mm-hmm. So excited by that. So it's not too much of a stop story. Was it, it was at the moment, but I've kind of gotten over it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, what, are, what are the biggest challenges when you're working on television and you're a laws of the game analyst? Yeah, I, the biggest challenge right out of the gate was a lot of the stuff I was doing was the actual live commentary on the game, right? So I have no media training whatsoever. I think probably the closest was like, controlling the camera in my fifth grade, like news production or something like that. Right. So like that was my media training. You know, people would argue that being an attorney, let alone a litigation attorney, right. That being in the courtroom helps. I'm like, yeah, but I got, you know, 15 minutes to make an argument. Right. So, and I get so much time to prepare for it. I know what their opposing counsels are doing, all that stuff here. The biggest challenge was effectively taking basically what was 20 years of experience and training and sitting in cold conference rooms, drinking really horrible tea uh, from the hotel, like, and learning about these nuances and breaking that down during live play in what essentially was about five to 10 second, um, you know, increments, right? So, you know, not being the, and I've learned quite a bit, not being in 52 games right out of the gate for my first I learned a lot in, in those 40-something days. I was like, all right, um, which is funny. I always remember going to them and I go, let me get this correct. You want me to speak at your like number one major production for the first time ever in my life. And they're like, uh, yeah. I'm like, all right, we'll try this out. But was breaking down that much of a knowledge in five to 10 seconds was pretty kind of difficult. But then I'm like, okay, what are the buzzwords that are going to resonate? What's going to translate to somebody who hasn't been stuck for hundreds of hours listening to, you know, watching film footage and listening to the breakdown. Um, So that took me a little bit to kind of get that and understanding where the role is, right? So if you have the play-by-play commentator talking, right, essentially I would kind of step in in that play-by-play commentator if I was talking about that or answering a question to then like the actual... 
uh, what, you know, uh, sorry, color commentator and knowing when to step out when, if I'm talking during active play, if the play by play commentator needs to step in, right? And we have a game that unless, you know, unless they're just playing the ball back and forth in the defensive half or in the middle center where, like, I can talk for 15 seconds, that's great. But, you know, covering a lot of the games, it wasn't in the Women's World Cup. It was very attacking soccer for the most part. So I truly had five to seven second splits to talk. And that was probably the biggest learning lesson. And now that I'm doing pre and post game on Champions League and Europa League, like, that's been a different beast in the sense that now I have time to talk. Like, I'm like, oh my goodness, they just gave me like eight minutes to explain the scenario and to answer Ian's questions and, you know, uh, entertain Jimmy's questions where I'm like, dude, is, are you just asking me this because you're upset that you didn't hit your betting propositions? <laughs> but it, it was a challenge, but it was, it really trained me to how do I get this over to, you know, everybody else with the buzzwords and lay terms in five to eight seconds. So it was, it was a good learning experience. So you mentioned you are a lawyer. Like, how much time do you spend on that? What do you do with it? Um, so I have a bunch of what I call them jealous mistresses in my life, right? So anyone who practices law or has heard it, we always or has a family member or significant other, you always say the law is a jealous mistress because it will take any and every second of your day that you possibly give it. And you will lend every night thinking about the 20 other items you didn't get done and feeling like you're unsatisfied in your completion of your projects. Working on that. It's a big mindset thing. Um, <laughs> and then I add the refereeing side, another jealous mistress, right? Especially when I worked for, or when I was doing FIFA stuff and US soccer stuff, right? They would call me and say, hey, I need you to go Guam for 10 days. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I got a hearing like the next day. <laughs> but right, if you don't do it, then you're going to move on to the next person. And, you know, it, it's that kind of a deal. So, it's been, and I think this is kind of where a lot of my, you know, self-introspective, um, right? Uh, we always joke, they call them self-help books. I call them development performance training books. Um, but kind of tapping into that mindset because, you know, I get strained and stretched in so many different directions from my legal career to refereeing, whichever component that's in, whether it's media or active officiating, to I also have um, a couple of other businesses. Um, I own Scorch Fitness with my business partner, which we're building that into a bigger franchise. That's so like a boutique personal hit gym. And then, you know, um, from family, right? Uh that I've kind of learned quite a bit of uh, effectively over the past couple of years is saying, how do I not burn myself out? Because I do like to have a, like, everyone's like, well, just do one thing. And I'm like, well, I can't, then I'll go crazy. So I'm like, if I know I'm going to go crazy just doing one thing, I got to figure out how do I uh, manage all of these, you know, different worlds I have. And so I went away from, you know, thinking about work-life balance. Um, I always hate images of showing like women in like, you know, um, in suits, like carrying a baby in one hand and the law books in the other one, wearing high heels. I'm like, that that's not reality. Like, that's completely not reality. You're setting up people to be disappointed. So um, I read The One Thing uh, by Gary, Keller, Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, and that book kind of opened my eyes because it's like, it's not work-life balance, it's counterbalancing, right? Being in extremes in certain areas, like you right now, having to, having to leave so you can just write, you know, and, and being in that extreme, but you're not in that extreme the entire time. You'll come back to, you know, your center. Um, so you can get the things that you want to get done that are major, that take that time, but come back. So um, practicing the law is my full-time job. Um, even between that, right, um, I'm sitting for board certification for construction law next week and uh, I'm getting my real estate license just so that I'm not prevented from helping a client sell one of their properties. <laughs> um, but that's like my main job with sports law that I do as well. So construction law and sports law and some business representation. Um, 
and that takes up quite a bit of time. It truly, truly does, um, especially when it comes to litigation. And sometimes you'll do, you can't control what the other side is doing. It's like a it's a game there too, right? It's a chess piece kind of a thing. But it takes up quite a bit of time. But I also really, truly enjoy the officiating. And I always laughed like when I started practicing the law. I'd see people that were 70, 80 still going into the office, and I'm sitting here scratching my head. I'm like, gosh, why are they going into the office at 70, 80? But then I realized as long as you're cerebral and you haven't lost, you know, your infirmities. You can continue practicing the law. So <laughs> that'll yeah. always be a part of my life. I'll continue to pursue the refereeing until my left ACL blows on me again and um, keep it up at that way. So it's been it's been crazy. It's not easy. It's not easy. But then again, I'm also supported with really good family and friends. Um, and I try as best as I can to create an environment that allows me to. Now, you alluded to this. Uh, our listeners may know your husband, Ted Uncle, who's also a referee, a FIFA referee. Um how rare is it for two people who are FIFA referees to get married? And and how has that worked, both being referees? Yeah, so kind of like I briefly mentioned to you before, um, I actually never wanted to talk to or date a referee uh, when I started getting more active into this for the fact that it was it's like your work profession. You're like, you don't really want to date someone necessarily in your work profession. Like, how awkward would that be if you like break up and everybody knows and you still have to work with each other in tournaments? So I was so anti, um, which I've learned when I say like, I'll never do something like somehow it always happens in my life. It's like God's like funny joke on me all the time um, that Ted and I actually met coming up um, and Funny enough, they actually kept when I said getting put, I was put in too many games that were way over my head for my quality and skill level at that time. But I was learning they kept putting Ted as my assistant referee one to basically make sure the game doesn't go completely down. <laughs> but like we worked so many games together and that's how I got to know him. Um, and that was, as he reminded me, was 12 years ago. Uh, last week was 12 years ago that we've been married. So we kind of, you know, we kept it funny enough. We kept it on the down low that we were dating. Um, the entire time, um, the way referees found out that we were even, we were already engaged by the time they found out, um, because that's how we wanted to keep it. And the only reason they found out was he showed up to my, one of my last games as a senior in college. Um, and, uh, the referees saw him and I knew the referees and they saw him and they're like, what's Ted doing here sitting in between your parents? Um, so that's how the referee community found out. And funny enough, a friend there was, uh, was also probably like, the biggest like social person ever. So he like told the whole world. So everyone found out within 24 hours, but then they were kind of surprised to find out we were already engaged um so yeah married for 12 years i mean it's been a blessing because as i said this world is something that doesn't make sense i tell people all the time if you officiate there's no logical reason to officiate and that sounds crazy but there really is no logical reason to officiate i mean it's we're not doing it for the glory clearly there is none you just get yelled at the whole time and nobody ever remembers your name even if you did a world cup final after eight to ten years people forget about you, <laughs> right? Maybe the referee world remembers, but nobody else does. Um, but like, and then the money's not there. It truly, truly isn't. I mean, I work in a billable hour world, so I'm always breaking down how much time I've spent going to a game, returning from a game, there at the game, doing assessments, doing feedback, doing training. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm making negative 10 cents like an hour, right? <laughs> but it all comes down to the passion of it. Like we love just the passion of being at the game and trying to service the game at the highest level and the mental stimuli of it all. Um, and just being something in a game that you've loved that, you know, as a player, I couldn't play, continue to play. There was no women's professional league when I was done playing soccer, never would play on the U S women's national team. I wasn't fast enough, um, let alone skilled enough, but, uh, definitely not fast enough. Um, 
So kind of entering in this world, it, I always tell people, even who aren't dating a referee or married to referees, like you just got to find somebody. And this is kind of regardless of what your passion or your, your, you know, your, your kind of one of your life passions objective is find someone who just supports you for what you love to do. Right. So like this one can take you away. I mean, Mother's Day, I'm doing NCAA Division One, right? So I'm leaving for Mother's Day, right? The number of holidays we missed from anniversaries to birthdays to, you know, even that Veracruz game was during Thanksgiving, right? Like, we're not with each other. Um, but the fact that we know each other, like, you know, what the demands are, like, sometimes you'll be at a tournament and you might call them at the end of the night. And, you know, other people might be like, well, you should be calling me every hour. Well, when you know how, you know, mentally draining it is to be surrounded by people all the time, especially when I wear CONCACAF, I'd always be the translator uh, <laughs> at the same time. Like, it, it's just, it's just an experience and it's an amazing journey to go with him because him and I both know the people, the same people, you right. You mentioned someone's name and you know, you already know all the backstory. You already know kind of what this storyline entails. And contrary to what people believe, we also don't talk a lot about soccer. Like we do, but I probably talk least about soccer. I think he's more into it than I am sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, here, do you want to commentate instead of me? Um, <laughs> But I mean, it, it helps because of that sense. We can have those quick conversations, but he's been probably um, not only my biggest cheerleader, but my biggest mental support in learning how to balance it all. Because like I said, it was it's a jealous mistress and where I easily, especially, you know, but for him, I probably would have quit my legal job. I would have quit everything. I would have probably gone for my dream of a World Cup. I probably would have made zero money <laughs> and been in a lot of law school debt. But for him, because I was pursuing this where he's like, hey, you can't take things into extreme and refereeing lens for extremes. He's like, you have to have this balance between, you know, your health and your family and your friends and doing all that. So he's been the probably the biggest one for that in keeping me, you know, grounded, uh, especially when it comes to our family. Um, now we have a little one who's five years old, Quinn. She's awesome and she's spunky. Um, but just doing this with him and it's very rare. Um, I don't know how rare it is. I think there's probably been maybe two, three couples who were both active FIFAs at the same time. I think one in New Zealand. Um, currently, um, which I love it, Anne Maria's, but I might have just had her baby, and I think down in Commonwealth. So while they were both active as FIFA officials, um, and then Chris Penso just got his VAR badge. So I know I will now consider him and Tori as both FIFA officials at the same time. So it's not easy. It's not easy, and it kind of it really takes a whole village um, when you're both pursuing. You know, you go for way for a Concacaf game. Ted just went for a Champions League game. Uh, for CONCACAF and was gone for four or five days, right? What do you do with that? Um, so it's it's been great. And uh, he's just been kind of my greatest supporter out here and understanding it and vice versa. You know, if either of us have a bad game, it's you kind of know what to say to the other person and or not what to say to the other person, you know, given that time off and kind of, you know, having that, you know, that bounce, you know, that, that the individual to bounce off these ideas and, you know, am I crazy? Am I looking at this? Am I too close to the situation and vice versa? We're winding down with Christina uncle. Really appreciate you taking this much time. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I do want to ask you behind you, as we're talking now, you have <laughs> a, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg poster painting yeah. maybe. Um, and it hits me like, you know, you're a lawyer. You're also working with the laws of the game, what does RBG mean to you? Yeah, so it's funny you see that, which, by the way, my friend Courtney Wall, who's a sports artist, um, painted it for me. I commissioned her to do it, and she did an incredible job. I'm not really good at giving direction. I'm not artistic. So I'm like, just do something amazing. Here's my like favorite quote. And like for me, like 
the game is, is, is bigger than sport, right? I think there's, I believe in the power of sport, the ability to change, um, you know, from cultural to institutions, to mindsets, et cetera. Um, and so like for me, RBG has always been a legal kind of proponent of it and how she basically built this tapestry of essentially getting women equal rights, right? And, and how she did it through case law and how she established it first for men and then, right, the, you know, the logical arguments leading if one plus one equals two, you can't deny that. Like those types of arguments. Um, and the, a lot of those still are strong in sport where I, I do think we're behind quite a bit um, because people say, oh, it's sport. It's not cultural. I'm like, well, you know, tell that to the 2019 Women's World Cup, right? And how that just, you know, you know, you know, just had such a major impact all over the world. But his uh, painting, which I love, is called Real Change Enduring Change Happens One Step at a Time. So I kind of always have that, which I also have a bobblehead. So that just shows how like... Oh, nice. RPG bobblehead. (laughs) (laughs) RPG bobblehead, right? So I don't have sports figures back there. But like, I'm like, how do we use this game? And I got to remind myself, like we, especially as a a female in sport, women in sport, having witnessed, right, um, the WPS days, right? And even the early NWSL days where, you know, not just I, right? We're referees, we're always shafted, right? We always have a horrible locker room. (laughs) But seeing professional athletes, right? not being treated like professional athletes from accommodations, et cetera, and seeing their battle and their fight. Like I always have to remind myself, like it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to be one step at a time. Um, and then how do we not just come, like, I always hate it when people complain about things. I'm like, cool. Like you're stating the obvious, like, of course, women get paid less, you know, of course we don't have like, great. We already know that check. Like now, how do we change that? And that happens through law that happens through sitting on a, you know, a board, like finding the allies, that type of a thing. So that's kind of what, she stands and resembles for me is how do we make improvements? And by making improvements, that might be one step at a time. That might be with people, getting people to do what you want them to do without realizing that they got you to do it. (laughs) Christina Uncle is a former FIFA referee who is also a laws of the game analyst on television these days for CBS. Christina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Graham, for having me. And it was an honor to work with you. One of the leading voices in American soccer from when I was a little girl, finally catching up to it. It's, it's truly an honor to finally speak to you about this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Christina Uncle, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview with someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.